This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Season 2 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I will briefly discuss the horror of the most recent mass shootings in the United States and what must be done to stop them. I will also honor Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month by welcoming ARC member Sarah Fung back to the show to discuss the complicated history of the relationship between Asian and African Americans and how understanding, acknowledging, and taking action to change this history to one of unity will be required to spread anti-racism. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform yourself and to practice and spread anti-racism. Now, this begins with our process to personally transform yourself to anti-racism. And there are three steps. The first is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second is educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third and most important is building the character and confidence to stand up speak out and take action to spread anti-racism and make a positive change. Now, I have to start this episode by talking about the horrific mass murders in Buffalo, New York, in Uvalde, Texas. In Buffalo, 10 people were brutally killed in a mostly black neighborhood. In Uvalde, Texas, 21 people were killed, 19 of them elementary school children, almost all Latino. And you may not have heard of this one because it was thankfully less deadly. But there was also a mass shooting in the last month in a Taiwanese church in Laguna Woods, California, targeting Asian Americans. Now, these are all just the latest It what seems to be a regular occurrence, not seems to be, is a regular occurrence in the United States. I can back that up by numbers, in fact, because already this year, there have been more mass shootings. Mass shooting is defined by four or more people who've been shot in the same event. There have been more mass shootings than days of the year so far. There have been over 200 mass shootings in the United States already in the first 148 days of this year. It's a sad fact, but it is the truth. And unfortunately, it's not new. And we're the only country in the developed world, the only country with a highly developed economy in which this happens. There's no other country in the world with a developed economy that has anywhere near the prevalence of mass shootings than the United States. Now, we don't know what all the exact motives of mass shootings are. Certainly, we don't know all the facts of the last three I mentioned. But there's very, very strong evidence that the Buffalo shooting and the Laguna Hill shooting were motivated by hate and racism. And we know for a fact that all these shootings were enabled by the ease of obtaining guns in this country. And not just handguns 
but military-grade assault rifles designed for the purpose of killing as many people as quickly as possible. It's easy to obtain these weapons in the United States. What are we doing? What are we doing? Innocent people are being killed. Our children are being slaughtered. And after every one of these tragic incidents, no new gun laws are passed at a national level. Not one. Not after Virginia Tech University shooting that happened 15 years ago. Not one law passed after the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, almost 10 years ago. No new gun laws passed since the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, almost five years ago. Instead, we've seen several states actually pass laws to weaken gun control laws in their states to make it even easier for people to get these weapons of mass destruction. And even sadder, the trend that we see after every one of these shootings is no laws being passed, no new national laws to reduce the ease of getting these guns or less guns on the street. What we actually see is higher gun sales. Yes, more guns are sold after these shootings. Again, what are we doing? We know how to stop this. It's not difficult to understand. It's very, very clear what has to be done. The question is, do we have the resolve? You know, the, the motive of these shootings. It's hard to figure out all of them. There are a lot of reasons why people resort to violence and take this step to do mass shootings. So we all have to continually work together to address all these various issues. Whether it's the people who are doing things to work on the economy to make sure people have gainfully employable jobs. Or whether it's the work that we're doing at ARC to spread anti-racism and anti-hate. Or whether it's the work that many other organizations are doing to help address many of the other various reasons why people resort to these actions. But there's no doubt that the severity of these actions is due to the fact of the easy availability of military-grade guns, allowing these actions to go from a single incident where one or two people are impacted to be magnified to events of mass destruction, mass carnage, mass, mass murder, Mass death. This is what's different about the United States. 90% of Americans understand this. They understand that we've got to do something about the proliferation of guns. They support implementing, passing and implementing basic gun safety laws nationally. Like universal background checks, red flag laws. Yet there's a faction of lawmakers, and we all know who they are, who simply don't care and refuse to do anything. Not one thing. The only way that this is going to change, the only way to start saving innocent people's lives. The only way to stop the senseless slaughter of our children is we must stand up, speak out, and take action. Transform ourselves, yourself, and have the confidence to transform others, your friends, your family, your co-workers, 
to force action by these lawmakers. And if they don't act, vote them out. This is the only way to make change happen. Now, this episode is not dedicated to the problem of mass shootings, but I just felt that it was so important to talk about these shootings to start this episode. And I promise that I will be doing another episode in the very near future dedicated to this issue. So please watch for that episode in the next coming months. But for this episode, I do want to switch gears and focus on honoring Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which closes out in just a few days here at the end of May. While at the same time, I want to use this opportunity to showcase what ARC members are all about, which is actually what I just talked about that's needed. People who are willing to stand up, speak out and take sustained action. Meaning not just once or twice do something, but continuously doing things to drive the positive change that's needed to combat, neutralize, and eradicate racism and hate. This means continuously learning and continuously transforming yourself and continuing to build the character and the courage and the confidence needed to spread anti-racism by influencing and helping others transform. Helping others adopt anti-racism by having real conversations and sharing what you have learned, whether one-on-one, whether in small groups, you got a couple of friends together, or in large public arenas, or using public media, social media. Now, I have a special guest today, Sarah Fung who personifies what I just talked about. She personifies what ARC is all about. Sarah's a longtime ARC volunteer who also happens to be a truly remarkable young lady who exemplifies the commitment to the ARC vision and mission. Sarah is here today to share some research that she did on her own. She decided she wanted to learn more, so she did some research. Regarding Asian American um, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with the specific focus, though, on the histories of Asian Americans and African Americans and how their histories are similar, how they're different, where there's been conflict and why, and how they are related and support each other. And more importantly, how this relationship illustrates that to achieve our vision to build a racism-free world, to spread anti-racism, it will require unity. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come right back with our special guest, Sarah Fung. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Arc and join our movement. All right, welcome back to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett. And as promised, I have my special guest on, and that is Sarah Fung. Sarah, welcome back to the Arc of Change. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me again. <laughs> awesome, Sarah. I want to thank you uh, for being on the show. I don't know if you know, but you're you're achieving another first. So when you were here in... Uh, in uh, in January, with our our first episode of season two, you appeared with uh, with Valerie and Rosa on a New mm-hmm. Hope. And that was the first time I had uh, multiple guests on a show. Um, the first time we had high schoolers on on the Arc of Change. But it's another first today. You're the first person to appear twice as a guest <laughs> on the Arc of Change. So Sarah, once again, making history. And I've known you since what you were ten, eleven years old. Something like that. Um, and uh, it's, it's awesome to see how you've grown into this wonderful young woman. Uh, thank you for all the great time you're putting into ARC. You've been um, one of our most dedicated volunteers, just doing a lot of tremendous work, whether on social media or just anywhere we need you. Um, so I really appreciate that. 
And um, again, for those who may not remember or from from when you were here in January, you introduced yourself. Uh, I think it would be good for you to just give us a quick intro to uh, to who Sarah Fung is. So everybody knows. Thank you, Donzel. Um, I'm Sarah. I am 17, uh, almost a, almost a senior, ending my junior year in high school right now. Um, I'm a Chinese American, and I live in Minnesota. I go to Breck School. Um, yeah. Again, thank you so much for that introduction. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you did it. You introduced yourself, and you did a wonderful job. I did say some really good things about you in the prior segment, but they're all true. Um, and uh, you just finished your junior year. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and if a lot of us who are listening, I know like myself, that was a long time ago. Uh, but I still remember some highlights. What what are a couple highlights from your junior year that you think were big for you? Um, I think really it was had definitely the most semblance to normal year since I've had for a long time. Mm-hmm. Everyone was back on campus. It um we went maskless wow. at the end of the year too. So just like being back and seeing everyone and like just, um, yeah, adjusting to being back on campus every day. Um, that was really fun just to see faces again, um, being in class. Um, junior year was definitely stressful, but like working through all these challenges and like now that I'm on the other side of it, it's just like really rewarding. Yeah. And, yeah, it's been quite the run. <laughs> and and you know the summer obviously is here now. And uh, what what plans do you have? Any big plans this summer? Um, I'm going to spend a lot of time at the art studio. I go to an art studio in Shoreview, and I just want to work on some art, getting ready for my portfolio, but also just art is fun. So that'll be fun for me. Um, and then hopefully doing a lot of work with ARC and maybe an internship. Yep. Awesome. We can't wait to to have you work with us uh, doing some intern work. We got some big things going. And you mentioned art and uh, you, again, you're very talented. I remember when you first joined art, you put a profile picture up of a, of a a drawing that you did of a, of a young uh, African-American young man. And um, I think the message was, was really powerful. Um, uh, And uh, I'm wondering what, what, what are, what are your inspiration in terms of your art? Uh, this is the last question before I let you go to, to into the topic we want to talk about. But uh, I've just seen your work and it's really wonderful. What what are your main inspirations? What do you love to to spend your time, you know, trying to bring to life through your art? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am really inspired about with like what's going on with the world like currently and like just I really like highlighting a lot of like normal everyday scenes. I think. That's been a recent focus of mine. Like I did a piece with like a mom feeding her child and just like highlighting the beauties of just like everyday moments and small moments that we see around us, but oftentimes overlook. Um, So, yeah, that's like been a main source of inspiration recently. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's get into it. Um, You know, Sarah, you did contact me um, about three or four weeks ago. Um, you yeah. sent me an email saying, hey, um, I've been doing some research on, um, you know, in preparation for a- Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage uh, Month. And uh, you said, you know, you, you wanted to really do this research and learn about the, the histories um, um, of Asian American, African American relationships and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of, you know, how they've related, where there have been some issues and some problems what the struggles have been. There have been, you know, certainly some similarities, some differences. And so you brought that to my attention. You said, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see if I do this research, maybe share it. And I said, well, what about coming to the podcast? <laughs> and you said, sure. And you, you were like right away, you're very excited about it. And so uh, I can tell you that, um, you know, you and I have talked a little bit since then and shared some ideas. I am very excited to to hear your 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 findings today and to hear your perspective and your point of view, uh, and so I'm prepared to allow you whatever time and freedom of expression that you need to take us through this topic, to tell us what you learned, to tell the right. audience why you picked this topic because it was it was you you came to me uh, with this. Uh, wh- what were the key findings and what do you want people to take away? So you know, hey, you got a large audience willing to listen. 
The floor is yours, Sarah. Okay, thank you so much. So, uh, like Donsley mentioned, May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So it kind of marks a month that we as a nation can really reflect and recognize the uh, achievements of Asian Americans. It's also a time to explore like the, di the diversity and beauty of all the cultures that Asian American AAPI encompasses and how they've really influenced and shaped America today. Um, this month, however, we also, I know you mentioned this before, um, in the part you recorded before this, the like devastating acts of hate um, that we continue to see that have been highlighted this month specifically, actually. Um, I know locally there were like some anti-Muslim mosque attacks um, and then obviously the Buffalo shooting fueled by just pure racism and hatred towards black people. Um, plus like countless other instances of hate that just go unaddressed or aren't reported on. And so obviously racism affects society constantly. Um, but I guess with these headlines really making national coverage this month, API month, I thought an interesting way to sort of combine these two themes in this podcast was to do a deep dive into both some inspiring instances of cross-cultural activism involving the Asian community, um, while also like highlighting the work of Asian civil rights activists like Yuri Kochiyama. Um, additionally, um, I think it's really necessary, like you said, to really uncover the history of like racial wedges and schisms between the Asian American community and other minorities, notably the African American community and these interactions and intersectionality. Um, and I hope in doing so, we can really shed light that like contemporary animosity that we see today and tensions that we see today between these two groups are really rooted in this artificial pitting of minorities against each other that have been perpetrated by racist systems and quite frankly, just white supremacy in general. And so then I think really by educating our own communities, we can move past these internalized biases um, and see that we're all in this universal fight, not against each other, but against racism as a whole. And that racism is destructive to humanity in general. And so this also is just to prevent racism, like what we've seen this month. And so just recognizing that this fight requires unity and cross-cultural activism. Um, and before I jump into <coughs> some of what I mentioned, I want to make clear that there's like the struggles of Asian Americans and African Americans are not at all the same. And it's not a competition. We often hear there's this term called oppression Olympics. It's not that. We can't equate the two groups' experiences, but we can see today that a lot of it stems from the same source. And so today I really just want to raise awareness on how the histories of both groups are, are so incredibly linked instead of this like comparison and competition. So I think I'm going to start with talking about the model minority myth which I think is one of the most divisive tools that has been used to pit Asian Americans against other minorities. So this term model minority myth was actually coined by a white sociologist in 1966. And it refers to the notion that Asian Americans are this model, this model minority or example to other minority groups on achieving success. It's the stereotype that Asians are, because they're hardworking, they're obedient, they're well-behaved, opposed to quote-unquote like problem minorities. So we're kind of held as this example by white America that America is colorblind. It's like this proof that America of like America's um, meritocracy and that it provides this myth that America has equal opportunities for all people of color. And so I think another interesting point to add to this is that like 
to take into account America's like restrictive history on immigration, specifically from Asia, like from the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1886 to like further immigration quotas. And then even in 1965, even though US like ended these quota-based systems of immigration, they began to push instead for this high skilled labor to enter the country. So basically the Asians who did immigrate were often these like hand-picked groups of higher education and class status. And so it kind of shows how flawed this like myth and notion is of the model minority myth, because it's like comparing the performance of this hand-picked group to other groups like African-Americans who were brought here and forced to be here due to like slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So not only does this kind of like divide and drive racial wedges, it also just dramatically generalizes Asian Americans as a whole. So Asian Americans, Asia is a whole entire continent. <laughs> it's, we're not a monolith <laughs> in any way. Right. So even though like, um, you may look that <clears throat> Asian Americans have the or like have the highest income of all minority groups, they also have the widest income gap of any minority group too. So I think that really speaks volumes to how it is so generalizing. Um, and I really want to include this rundown of the model minority myth to really emphasize on how artificial some of these tensions between minority groups are and how flawed they are. It like shows the perfect example on how these wedges are like we're created to really divert the the attention and energy from the bigger picture of combating white supremacy and racism and how it was just used to so the people in power can maintain power while the people oppressed that can fight amongst themselves. <laughs> Another notable schism between Asian Americans and Black um, uh, African Americans and that is the 1991 killing of Latasha Harlins and then the subsequent LA riots after the killing of Rodney King. So essentially, Latasha Harlins was this young teenage black girl who was shot and killed by a Korean grocery store owner, mm -hmm. who then later received an extremely light sentence of, of like five year probation and then like some community service. And so this all really effectively exacerbating, exacerbated the existing tensions between Asian Americans and African-American residents in this Los Angeles area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these existing tensions, I might mention, were really fueled by both like the negative depiction of both groups in mainstream like American media yep. that was like just ridden with xenophobia and then racism. And then obviously the model minority myth and additionally just like economic competition between both groups because yeah. both groups are kind of just grouped into these economically disadvantaged areas. And so then, um, and then later there were the LA riots due to the killing of Rodney King. And then- Just, just a quick correction. He, he wasn't killed. He was just beaten severely. Uh, oh, but he, okay. he he didn't die. He did at that oh. time. He wasn't killed, but still, okay. that did spark the LA riots with the verdict. Uh, so go ahead. Sorry about that. I just wanted to make sure that uh, that was corrected. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Um, right, and then, like you said, it sparked these riots, and then the result of this was a lot of Korean American businesses were targeted um, during these riots, and a lot of it was fueled by. Um, what we saw with Latosh Harlan's this, mm -hmm. this tension that was kind of like boiling over. And I think it kind of just shows how like hate and violence, how just these like these biases that have had been formed resulted in so much hate and violence and resentment between the two groups. And just like, yeah, this history of tension and understanding where it stemmed from and then events that kind of boiled it over. Um, I think maybe now I kind of want to shift some attention to more cross-cultural activism, um, highlighting some 
Asian American civil rights activist, um, Yuriko Chiyama, and then, yeah, like this cross-cultural activism. So basically in like the 60s, um, there were like students of all ethnic backgrounds, Asian American, um, African American students, they formed this third world liberation fund. Uh, front and then so they organized strikes leading to ethnic studies and equal education opportunities so it's just it was just this like great example of the power of cross-cultural activism and then other instances like the emergency detention act within world war ii where japanese americans were sent to internment camp internment camps like black leaders were really active in trying to repeal it and then also like the murder of Vincent Chin, um, an Asian American who was just beat to death on the streets and how like black activists like Jesse Jackson were really outspoken about um, his death in reform and um, justice. Also, um, like even back to Frederick Douglass, he was really outspoken against the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, he was- I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's a great learning for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he spoke a lot about how important it was for us to, as just like to unite against any wrongdoing and discrimination against any race, any group, how it was everyone's responsibility to do so. Um, There's also... There's just like a lot of instances and then like black Americans mobilized during World War II and pressured um, uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt to establish the Fair Employment Practices Committee. And then also um, like Black Panther, you can see like there was this whole movement like Yellow Peril for the Black Panther movement. So it's just this like uniting during the Civil War rights era of mm-hmm. these two groups and just like fighting for social justice, racial justice, and um, human rights. And then like I mentioned, Yuri Kochiyama, she was a good friend of Malcolm X. She was there for his assassination and she was just really inspired by his work. She joined his group and advocated for racial justice, human rights. Um, she was a strong advocate for Puerto Rican independence. She just like was really inspiring as a Asian, uh, Japanese American, Asian American woman, um, just like being so active and like empowering all these different groups. Um, yeah, she was incredible. And then, incredible. Yeah. And if, like if people haven't heard about Yuri Kochiyama, you need to need to Google her and learn a little bit. She was absolutely incredible. I had to mention that because I, I didn't even know who she was until. Last year, I did some research, and it's a shame um, because she was there. Uh, she yeah. was there, so so keep going. Sorry about that. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, there's like I saw. I first learned about her when I like I saw a picture of Malcolm X, and there's this this Asian woman in the back. <laughs> and so you, yeah, it's her work is definitely really inspiring. Um, and then. Even today, I think just in like fact, in fact, she she was on like you said she was there when he was shot and she was um, embracing him and she actually was holding his head up so he could breathe until he died. That's how mm-hmm. close she was and she refused to leave his side um, even in that in that dangerous moment. So uh, again, learn about Yuri Kochiyama. Yes. Sorry about that, Sarah. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, yeah, for sure. And then yeah. Like I mentioned, so like today we see cross-cultural activism with um, Stop API Hate and then Black Lives Matter. Like mm-hmm. in 2020, the Black Lives Matter protests, you see a young Asian Americans rallying up, participating in these protests and then vice versa. Um, like for Stop API Hate, when like Asian hate crimes were really bad, you see Black activists and leaders speaking up against <clears throat> API hate and so I just think like even though today we often see these points of tension and we still see these stereotypes and biases arising we can still see these like moments of empowerment and 
cross-culture activism, which I think is just kind of the message of like how powerful it is and then understanding the roots of where these existing like biases come from Mm -hmm. um and then taking that into educating our own communities and ourselves and yeah just confronting that and identifying the roots of it i think it's just really important and necessary Mm -hmm. to the furthering of this like unity and cross-cultural activism fantastic thank you Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. So can I ask you some questions? Because this that was phenomenal. One of the things that I think is, is really, <clears throat> you know, interesting um, about what you, uh, you know, you just went through a, a, an excellent description. I don't know if you're familiar that this idea of this model minority didn't start in 1967. I can't remember the guy that coined the term at the time, but it actually um, started back at the turn of the century, uh, oh. of the turn of the, you know, from 1800 to 1900. So early oh. 1900s, there was a gentleman named Booker T. Washington. Uh-huh. So the, he was a African-American leader, and there was another African-American leader named W.E.B. Dubois. Uh, yeah. And they were had competing views about post-slavery and reconstruction, the best way for the, the you know African Americans to integrate and be part of society. W. B. Du Bois' view was full equality, and to participate fully, you know, we need to get educated, and we should be able to rise up like everyone else. Um, right. W. B. Booker T. Washington's view was different. His view was pretty much what this model minority perspective is. His view was nope. What we should do is focus on technical jobs, uh-huh. get technical skills, um, be obedient, don't cause trouble, keep your house clean, keep your yard clean, keep your head down, and mm-hmm. over years, the majority will accept you. Yeah. And that actually is where this model minority sort of view came from. And as you can imagine, it created a rift. In, in, in the African-American society, there were many black people leaved in Booker, uh, Booker T. Washington's view. He actually started the Tuskegee Institute, which you may have heard of, uh, <clears throat> famous black university. Um, but there were many others who did not agree with him uh, and mm-hmm. felt like it meant accepting subjugation. So mm-hmm. I don't, had you heard about about that before, Booker T. Washington and this idea of the, it literally the model minority of what black people should be? and how to achieve acceptance into the white world? Had you heard about that? I mean, we studied Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois in like, A-Push and like, school, um, U.S. history and stuff. But I guess I never really connected like the conflicting ideas and ideals to like the model minority myth. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, and it's one of those things that as uh, as as you know, in, in the black culture, I would say that has mm-hmm. kind of carried it uh, along and even into when Dr. Martin Luther King uh, was was bringing his message of how to you know break down uh, segregation and achieve equality. Uh, you know, Malcolm X's view was different. It was almost in parallel a little bit, whereas Dr. King was about nonviolence and kind of acceptance in some black people's minds. It was more about acceptance and Malcolm X was more, no, we want, we, we, we demand what we deserve. And so there's always been this kind of uh, split. I think it's one of the reasons why there's this tension. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why there's tension with, between the two communities. But I think one of them is there, there's so much pent up rage in, in the mm-hmm. black community because of these years of trying the acceptance route um, and, and never really feeling like it's gone anywhere. But also yeah. feeling like, hey, you know, we've we've we had to obey for four hundred years. We don't want to obey. We want to. We we believe in freedom. We believe in doing the right thing. We demand what what all of us this country says in the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of Independence and you know our inalienable rights. We all deserve yeah. those. And so I'm wondering, what what role do you think that there's 
any of this view of, hey, I, I, I'm seeing my Asian friends. Why aren't they always stepping up like Yuri, Yuri, uh, Yuri Koshiyama did? Uh, do you think there's any of that that's like, hey, why, why won't you join me? Why are you willing to just kind of just work hard? And as long as, you know, there's no problems, you're okay when you see the rest of us kind of suffer. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that. Right. I think a lot of it stems from, <clears throat> I think from a cultural perspective, a lot of our, our parents are like our grandparents, they have, they're from, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf yeah. of like a Chinese American, um, like I mentioned before. Yes. Asian American, very diverse. Very diverse. <clears throat> from my perspective, a lot of our parents, our grandparents, they moved here from China. Yes. And so this like, this cultural aspect of work hard. And, and then like anything, it's interesting to look at like political divide within the Asian community, but then this just like, especially um, by generation, I think the younger generation means more liberal, but then like the older generation, they moved to America and it, they grew up in this, in like a communist in like yeah. society. And so this like American freedom and like democracy is just like, they would rather like any notion that kind of resembles, I think communism. Yeah in a sense, they are just very against it. They just want to stay down, enjoy yeah. their democracy, like freedom, and, you know, the model minority myth. Yes. Down, work hard, like, don't speak up against anything, don't cause any trouble, you know. Yes. I think a lot of it stems from this just, like, cultural background of a lot of our, where our parents, grandparents are from. So that's how i kind of see it yeah. from like a chinese american perspective yeah. i think i think that's right on i think it, it's you know if you're an immigrant uh it's different than if you uh you know again are coming from especially if you're african-american and you could link li trace your lineage back your whether you're like my family was brought to the caribbean islands um right. but enslaved um so different experience different history but it's still the same thing it's kind of like this mindset of my grandparents were telling me messages like, you know, we couldn't do this because of segregation. You must take it. The opportunity is here. You, everything you deserve, you go get. That's mm -hmm. kind of the, men, the message that I got. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, work hard, but you deserve it. Don't let anybody try to take anything from you. Don't accept anything less. You're not mm -hmm. better than anybody else, but you're as good as anyone. And every right that everybody has, you deserve and that is different than if, if you recently come from a, a country in which your rights were, were not yours and all of yeah. a sudden you're in this country where you have some rights. I could see where that that perspective would be different. Mm -hmm. right. <clears throat> and that would create some tensions. I could see that. Yeah. For sure. All right. So so tell me, Sarah, uh, you just mentioned your personal experiences uh, around you know being a Chinese American. Um, I said earlier, you're an incredible young woman. I mean, you know, you're obviously a fantastic student, well-spoken, obviously, you know, you've done some research here that you, no one asked you to go do this. Uh, so you're someone who's always pushed yourself to do better. Um, I could see that there could be some people who would look at you and say, she's being this model minority. Do you ever feel that there some of your classmates are look at you that way and, and, that you feel like somehow there's some responsibility you have to either speak against that or does it put you in tough situations with whether it's other minority schoolmates or, or majority schoolmates that just makes you feel awkward? How does all of this make you feel? Yeah, I like growing up, I think I always I don't know where it stemmed from. Maybe it was a comment. Maybe it was. I don't know, but I think I kind of internalized this like connection that somehow my accomplishments or my like the work I did was somehow just like inexplicably linked to my race being Asian. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I definitely felt that growing up um, in school, like 
be good at math, I'd be like, mm, it's because I'm Asian. <laughs> uh, like, I would say things like that. And looking back on it, like how, just thinking how like toxic, toxic it is. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely had internalized it. And I think I almost like showed that it was allowed for my classmates to see it that way, which it isn't. And I think it is something that young Asian Americans should realize that their accomplishments are because of their hard work, not anything linked to their race. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think it kind of, it definitely put some barriers and some like definitely internalized stereotypes for me. And I think a lot of Chinese Americans can relate to this and just like um, linking their accomplishments to their race. Mm-hmm. And yeah, do do others make you like you said there are times you said stuff like, "Hey, I'm good at math because I'm I'm Asian or I'm Chinese." But have there mm-hmm. been others who have kind of made you feel that way, or or has it created any any tensions between uh, some of your friends at all? Yeah, <clears throat> seeing like in media, like Sixteen Candles, that one Asian character who's uh. just like good at math and like there's a gong that sounds every time he's on <laughs> on screen like i think it, it's kind of enforced a lot in media and then like just small comments yeah. small jokes like there's always an asian better than you like i would hear that from my white counterparts or um just like other students who aren't asian and then like you kind of internalize that and then you make it i don't know you use it as a joke like you you know so I think a lot of it is just like a cultural thing in media, seeing it um, around us constantly. I can't really cite specific moments, but I think it's just accumulation mm-hmm. of all these little instances that kind of like fuel this. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned um, earlier that there there obviously have been, especially since the advent of COVID, an increase in um, hate directed at uh, at people of Asian descent who are poor who outwardly appear Asian, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether you call it Asian hate or API hate, um, and there have been attacks. Um, and some of these attacks have been by African-Americans. Um, why do you think that's the case? I mean, do you think it's related to what you talked about, this manifested, um, manufactured um, conflict that, you know, years ago, these were groups that did work together. Do you think it's because of this this model minority thing, or what? What do you think spurred that on? I think that this, like the tensions I talked about earlier, could like definitely play a role, and also just like xenophobia in general is so ingrained in our culture and in media, and like just like subliminal messaging, and like we all receive this the same we all like um have access and have like influence from these these sources and things Mm -hmm. so i think like perhaps it's because of the tensions but also it's like an overall issue of xenophobia in our in like in our society trump saying that it's the wuhan virus the china virus chinese virus like that in itself affects all americans yes we're all americans and so, um, yeah, just this, it's so ingrained in like, it influences our culture and society that I, I mainly cite like the xenophobia that we see in just mainstream culture and society. Yeah. Yeah. You mean, you, you have been, um, incredible in terms of, I and mean, you started volunteering with us. I think we were 14, uh, something like maybe 15. Um, mm-hmm. so you've been spending a lot of your time trying to help get ARC off the ground, trying to further our, our vision of creating a racism-free world, trying to spread anti-racism, developing yourself. You went through our first sort of course of, of learning and to how to transform yourself to be anti-racist. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, that, yeah, in the, in the marches over the summer after George Floyd, we saw some young Asian people. Um, yeah. Why don't we see more um, that are taking the type of steps that you've been taking uh, to to embrace um, you know, anti-racism, anti-hate, knowing that it won't, it won't not only just benefit, like you said, uh, racism against African-Americans or Latin, Latina people or, or, or whatever, but also address all the xenophobia issues that we're seeing. Why aren't more Asians 
actively engage? Yeah, I think that, like I mentioned before, like a cultural standpoint of let's stay low, let's keep quiet. <laughs> um, and then also just like this perspective oftentimes that like racism is a white and black issue that we don't really know our place in it, so we'll just stay out of it. Um, but that's obviously not the case. It's a, a fight that everyone has to partake in. Mm-hmm. Um, racism affects everyone. And it's not just, like I said, a white and black issue. And so I think this this um, I, ideolo- ideology is often um, vocalized in the Asian community that it's just not our problem. We don't have a place in it. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it is like a generational, like divide. Like yeah. I mentioned, like I, I, I definitely feel like the younger generation is, is more active, but they also are working on like teaching our, the older generations on why, um, these issues are important and why we have to speak out and why staying silent isn't helping us. It's actually harming us. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and confronting the racism that exists in our own communities. Um, I didn't touch on this earlier, but like as a Chinese American growing up, I think I observed like Asian culture or East Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Like it's a lot of, just anti-blackness and colorism that exists in our own communities. Like I know growing up, like I was, I definitely um, saw that a lot, heard that a lot. Like even in just like Asian mainstream culture, like colorism, wanting to keep your skin light, you know, like whitening of skin, like that's the beauty standard that's all over like uh, mainstream media there. And so like, and then also like, Black criminality is very is pretty prevalent in like Asian ideology, Asian culture. Like it's pretty, yeah. And mm-hmm. and also like um, growing up as like college is just around the corner. Like applying um, affirmative action is often a talked about topic, and it's widely misunderstood. I think in the Asian community. Obviously, there's two sides to it, and I think we often ignore, like, we often don't talk about why it's implemented, the history of it, mm-hmm. why, how it, like, establishes a common ground, and how, yeah. because of the oppression of minorities like African Americans, that it helps, and, like, the benefits of it, and how, like, how um, necessary, like, a diverse workforce and a diverse school community is. And then we often would focus on, on like the how it like negative have negative manifestations of it, like mm-hmm. Harvard Law student, how yeah. we were automatically marked as low person no personality. Like obviously there is ways to improve that part, but um seeing its mis- Necessity, I think it's really important first in the Asian community and why it exists and not automatically like uh, villainizing African-Americans. Yeah. I think that's how the perspective of affirmative action often shows up in like Asian communities. And um, I personally observed it a lot. So I think that like understanding where the history behind affirmative action for me was really fundamental in shifting like my perspective and the perspectives of um, people around me. That was awesome. Just that segment in and of itself, I think is, is cause it's a topic that very few people ever want to talk about, but we have, right. we have to have those kinds of conversations. And I'm yeah. so proud of you that you educated yourself because you're, you're someone who's going to, I mean, you probably going to be able to get in any school you want, but there may be a circumstance where you're on the list to get into a certain school <clears throat> and there may be someone who is at a lower economic or disadvantage, or maybe it's, it's a, a minority that's not as represented. And I could see where that could create a conflict. Um, yeah. So what I'm, I'm happy is that you've done the research to say, I can understand where that's yeah. coming from. And 
even more important, it sounds to me that you've talked to your friends about it and tried to help them understand it. That's what yeah. ARC's all about. And that's why I said earlier why you personify what ARC is trying to do. It's about educating yourself, learning what anti, what racism is first, opening your eyes to what it is. Um, and that it's not just black and white, understanding yeah. what anti-racism is and that it takes work. You got to do something and then actually having the courage to do the work. And, and you, you're doing it one on one with your friends and you have the courage to do it with us. Um, so I just had to say that, but one other, I had a follow up question for you regarding, you said, Hey, in the media, they, you know, they, they send these messages, whether it's mm-hmm. comments about the saying the China virus or the president of the United States saying those kind of things, sending a message that there's something bad about people from China or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, uh, the, the commercials, you know, or, or media trying to promote lighter skin is more pretty, those kinds of things. The only way to kind of to overcome these things is to actually have conversations and learn about people like you've done. Yeah. So you're, you're, I don't know how if Brecht is very diverse. I don't know that. So I'm not going to comment on it. But what I will say is as part of art, you've been on a team working with Rosa and Valerie, who are both uh, Haitian Americans. Um, right. You've worked with uh, on a team with Jeremiah, who's a white male, cisgender white male from the Midwest. Uh, obviously you're a Chinese American, um, all young people, how have you guys tried to work harder to use that work? You and you yourself speak for yourself to learn about them, their backgrounds, to learn about what they deal with. So again, you continue to broaden your perspective versus what someone said about Haitians. Well, you know, two Haitians, what someone may have said about cisgender white males, you know, cisgender white male. And you, how, how are you using that to broaden your horizon and, and build your skills? Yeah. Um, like we i think arc has definitely provided a space for me to just like be able to hear their stories their perspectives their their background and i think that's been really rewarding and just like like we had a discussion about um school systems and then like i breck is a pretty pretty quote-unquote woke school okay like we like we talk about critical race theory we're very like we have so many like affinity spaces affinity groups okay Um, like i'm a leader myself of our school's asian affinity um so like we have these spaces and support for um students of color and just like hearing their like i know valerie and miss adrian were talking about just like how they've that's this has been a struggle for them mm-hmm. of like having these like microaggressions against them and like their struggles for getting support for um like affinity spaces and yes. like the struggle as african-american students and so just it's like recognizing my like privilege in going to bracken the school that has provided me with like these safe spaces for me to like do the work that I can and just like um, really seeing that not like, I feel like at Breck, it'd be like stuck in a bubble to say that like, Oh, my school is so like, woke and mm-hmm. I can like do all these things. Other schools probably have it too, but there's a lot of work to be done and at other schools, other places. And just like seeing hearing their stories just like kind of emphasizes to me of like how I can use my voice and how privileged I am. And that gives me the opportunity to use my voice to advocate for others. And yeah. Awesome. Again, just a jewel of a, of a um, synopsis there by you, uh, Sarah, that I'm sure people will take tremendous value from. If there's one key message that you want people to take away from today's episode, uh, from your from you, Sarah, what would it be? Last question. Um, I think just emphasizing the power of unity and just taking the time to really identify and recognize your own biases and your own like seeing looking back at history and doing your own research on where they stem from, where your own stereotypes and where your communities like biases and stereotypes stem from understanding that we're all in 
that a lot of times they stem from the same source, Mm -hmm. racism, white supremacy, and that looking at these instances of like cross-cultural activism and racial solidarity, just like this unity and how powerful it is that we using that and understanding and confronting our own, like I said, biases and how, and only when we like identify them and learn about them, can we really move forward and erase them and fight against that and then unite to confront the bigger fight at hand of racism. Wonderful. Sarah, thank you so much uh, for today. I learned a lot myself just listening in today. I'm sure the audience is going to walk away from this just with the, just enriched. Um, I also want to thank you for all the work you're doing with ARC. You have been and continue to be um, one of our hardest working volunteers. You're making a tremendous difference. I can personally attest to this young lady's in terms of the schedule she keeps. Um, I say she's an incredible uh, young lady. She's an average young lady who does incredible things. She's an everyday person. She's not a superwoman. She doesn't have superpowers. Um, she doesn't show up in the Marvel universe. She's a person who just is doing amazing things. All of us can do what Sarah's doing if we want to. Um, she's a teenager. She's going to be a senior in high school. She's got social media. I know she's on that. Um, she's got <laughs> friends. You heard her talk about her friends. She has activities. She has hobbies. I hope she isn't into boys or anything like that, but uh, who knows? She's a teenager. Uh, I guess my point is, she is not unlike every one of us who are listening in. You might be a little older. You might be a little younger. Um, you may be in a different part of the country or the world. But you can do what Sarah's doing. Um, you just have to find the time. You have to make the time. <clears throat> this is what we're all about at ARC. It's about standing up, speaking out, taking action in a sustained way. And it's about learning, continuously learning. You heard Sarah talk about the learning that she's doing. You heard her talk about the research she's done and the fact that she's sharing it not only here, but with her friends. She talked about the uh, the affirmative action learning that she is passed on with others. Um, I just think you are a great example of what we're trying to do and what it will take to change things in this country, whether it's eradicating racism or whether it's changing these gun laws that need to be changed. Each of us needs to take it upon ourselves to transform ourselves and to influence and transform at least one other person and have them do the same thing. So, um, again, thank you so much, Sarah, for everything you're doing. Uh, I just I just think you're wonderful, and I know everyone listening to this will think the same thing. Thank you so much. And by the way, for all of our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the history of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month um, or the history about um, Asian immigrants in the U.S., and the linked histories of Asian Americans and African Americans and how they did work together at one time. She, Sarah gave you a couple of tidbits uh, about Yuri Koshiyama and about Frederick Douglass and others. Um, go back and listen to episode 10 of season one. We also talked about in that episode the whole model, model minority myth, where it came from, the link to Booker T. Washington. All of that is there on the episode number 10, season one, Educating Yourself About Anti-Racism, part three anti-racism in the Asian community in a discussion with a guy named Tommy Fung, who just happens to be Sarah's dad. So please go back and listen to that. Um, We will be right back after this short break to close out the show. What a wonderful segment with Sarah. Visit us at joinarc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe. And continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.